0: Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. We are on a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, we're starting way back in Matthew uh, 2 and 3. We've been looking at the baptism of Jesus at the hand of John the Baptist. And uh, one of the things I've been doing is giving a rendition of the narrative of the baptism that uh, is new and refreshing, it's revised, it's expanded, so we're calling it a screenplay. Think of it as a teaching on the narrative or a sermon about the narrative. But hopefully it's, it'll helpfully pull everything together in our brains, okay? So this is the Sermon on the Mount podcast, Matthew 3, verses 1 to 16, screenplay about the baptism of Jesus. It was then... That John the Baptist appeared. He had started preaching in the desolate, harsh Judean desert. He just kept saying, things need to change, now or never. Turn your life around and practice what you preach. If you really want God's blessing instead of the curses you have earned—that's right, I said it— you'd better act now because he's coming. In fact, he's just around the corner already. Isaiah said it a while back, you will hear a lone voice from the east howling in the desert, and I hear it. Now there is no more good enough time. Either you have made the necessary preparations for God, or most likely you didn't. Clear the path for the coming king. Make a way for the way. Lay down all of your supposed righteousness. They won't do any good. Just get out of God's way. It was a very strange sight, for this was not the voice of a kingly messenger or a prince or cleric. John was as rough and raw a human being as anyone had ever seen. His barren torn strips of camel hair cloth were wrapped around his head and waist. His ascetic calling mirrored his bleak and barren desert surroundings. His face was burned, dark, dark, gaunt and thin. His straggled beard was untrimmed and scattered by the dry, harsh wind. In the parts of the desert where he lived, there was no meat, little water, so he learned to survive on whatever insect he could dig up. Every now and then, he could find a bit of honey. That was a good day, and he would thank God for that, you can be sure. But those days were so rare in the Judean desert. Such was John's miserable existence, he would say, calling this day, John had left the worst of the desert behind him. God had given him, and he was not sure why him, a stark, timely message, a frightening message, actually, now or never. John was willing to proclaim it. He never shied away from his job, yet he was afraid that this would be his last assignment. So be it. He had survived the damnation of the desert's inhuman human ecology, and now he has one last message of warning for his tribe. He knew that it would not be received well from some parts, most in fact, and maybe after that the desert would seem almost hospitable compared to Jerusalem. As he lowered himself into the very shallow Jordan River, he was reminded of his birth home, Nazareth. It was as different from the desert as any place could be. What had led him to this existence? He could have been a fisherman or carpenter or teacher, but God raised him up as the next Elijah. Really? Him? Why? He was reminded that it just wasn't about him. This is the final clarion call for the one who is coming. The long-awaited and long-feared day of the Lord is at last here. Isaiah foretold of a spokesperson. John would fit that bill, but he knows that Israel is just not ready. Far from it. He wonders if he is. Truth told, he was surprised at how many of his people came to hear this harsh, judgmental message from God. They just seemed to keep coming from Jerusalem about a day's journey walk, but also from the east and the west of Judah. Something was happening here. They were scared. God had clearly pricked their hearts. They were authentically frightened and wanted to know what to do. John had never seen anything like it, not in his lifetime. God was indeed coming. For a Jew to be baptized was an act of deep humiliation. It was a loss of face in an honor-shame culture. They were openly admitting their sins against Torah and God, confessing aloud publicly that they were under God's rightful judgment. Again, that they had failed and screwed up one more time. Will it be another exile? God forbid. All Jews, if asked, wanted God's favor and certainly didn't want God angry with them. It's an easy synagogue question and answer, but until now, no one really thought much about it. God seemed like a distant fairy tale, something parents would tell their children to scare them into obedience. But something had happened to these people. They were terrified. They realized maybe for the first time that judgment was on the way. Real, not a boogeyman. They are absolutely not ready. For a Jew to be even willing to entertain the notion that nothing that they had done, including the prescribed temple offerings and prayers, the mikveh baths that supposedly washed some sins away, nothing they had done had a chance in Hades to spare them from the wrath of the coming judge. If God were coming, and for some reason they either believed it or were afraid not to, they were in deep trouble. And John saw that this was not just a few people, not just religious zealots. It looked like everyone came, lines upon lines of men, women, boys, and girls, all in fear and humiliation, bowing their heads in submission to John's baptism in the shallow, muddy Jordan River. They were not theologians they had not heard about the need for baptism. This was new. But if this fiery preacher said that this was a way to at least begin to do what God wanted, they were in. It was a physical public confession of their individual and corporate failure and faithlessness. It was a a way that each could publicly say, die, sin. The implication was that this was the best way to prepare for God's arrival. But was it? John didn't understand it yet, but it Will turn out that God's ways are indeed higher than humanity's. Jerusalem and the other villages around had emptied out and landed here. A new exodus, John thought to himself. He smiled as he remembered the passage from Hosea scroll. Out of Egypt I have called my son. If so, would there be a new rescue, a, a new Sinai, a new wilderness? Well, you can bet that all of this activity really ticked the priest off. I get it. This was a challenge not only to their authority, but everything they stood for. This was more than personal. They were the protectors of God's name, his reputation, the Torah. God's favor for Israel comes from the temple, the offerings, the priesthood. They didn't know this vagabond. He wasn't approved. They had no idea what his theological bent was. It was troubling, it was disruptive was it a Pharisee or a Sadducee? No one claimed him. In fact, it was rare that they agreed on anything, but they were unanimous that this guy is way out in left field. He clearly was a troublemaker, disruptive, a firebrand, a lightning rod, and he was creating a huge mess. Emotional fear and chaos spread like wildfire in Judea. He had to be stopped. This was for sure He clearly wasn't encouraging people to go to the temple to make an offering for their sin or to confess faithlessness. He wasn't supporting the work of the priest. In fact, he was acting like he was the high priest. Who else can forgive sin? God couldn't be pleased that his temple and priesthood were being undermined so and bypassed. If this were from God, he certainly would have told them, right? So troubling. And John didn't help his case when he looked over the heads of the people in line waiting to be baptized, saw the moralistic pious Pharisees and the erudite, sophisticated priestly class Sadducees standing at an even further distance, clearly aghast at what was happening. And from the look in their eyes, it was obvious that they were despising the happenings within this growing rabble. John didn't choose to give them the usual words of respect they had Become used to? Oh, no. Uh, They were not part of this making a way for God. They were roadblocks. Respect must be earned. So John angrily pointed his long bony fingers with wild unkempt nails towards the religious scrum on the upper ridge and growled loudly at them. Oh, look who has shown up. Clearly said with bitter sarcasm, not to join the rest of us and repent too, but to undermine and to take over. Spiritual killjoys, snakes in the grass. And now looking directly at them, he yelled up at no one in particular, loud enough for the entire mass of Jewish humanity to hear spittle leapt from his bearded mouth. Did God tell you to come out of your hole, snakes, to flee from the destruction that God will bring to the temple? Yours, not his. Of course not. When was the last time you spoke to God or heard from him? I'd be terrified if I were you. Talk is cheap. If you are indeed afraid of God's judgment, time to act. Beyond time to act. But I know you. Why would you ever submit to be baptized? Why would you, our so-called spiritual shepherds, humiliate yourself or soil your robes by getting baptized by the likes of me? It's not in your DNA. You tragically think that you don't need to repent, that you don't need to publicly confess your crimes against God, humanity, and creation? Well, so be it. You will answer to God himself, and soon. I understand. Why would you? You think you're already children of Abraham, and that counts for something, John said sarcastically, doing air quotes over his last words. He continued, and so you're automatically favored by God, nothing to fear, right? But look around you, see these rocks, those over there, the big one that you're standing on? God can make them children of Abraham too, but that would not make them in good standing with God, the judge, when he comes. And that is what's happening right now. God is coming as a disappointed lumberjack. His axe is already in his hands and his mighty swing has begun. Bad trees, trees without fruit, no matter how old or erudite or what their DNA might be, they're going down. They will taste the fire, even dead and dying so-called Abraham trees. See all of these children of Abraham who are terrified of the consequences of their sins? See the shame, the guilt? This is largely your doing. How have you helped them? Have you done one thing to rescue them from their miserable existence? I mean, if so, tell me. Tell us all. You wonder about baptism. Well, your temple mikvahs supposedly use special holy water to cleanse, but come on, that hasn't done squat to cleanse anyone. and They know it. God knows it. What does washing in the murky water of the Jordan do for these? You know, truth told, not much. I'm only washing them externally with water. What I am doing has zero authority to remove their guilt and shame. But God Himself is on His way. His arrival is imminent. He has all the authority in the world. I can't even carry His water. He will do the real cleaning. His baptism isn't with water, but a spiritual dry cleaning a fire that will burn away our shame and guilt. And that's so different from what I can do. Sorry to change metaphors, but like a good farmer, he will finally separate the wheat from the chaff and the latter will be tossed in field fires. And that's his right, you corrupt teachers. Where do you think you'll be? Then Jesus came. As the sun was beginning to sink in the western skies, another light was rising in the east Jesus of Nazareth was just now coming up upon the crowd of people, alone, unassuming, quiet, conservatively adorned. He looked like all the rest. He looked like a Jew. Jesus got in line, focused, thirsty and weary from his journey through the desert. And like the others, he also came to be baptized in the Jordan River by this wild preacher. Something caused John to look in Jesus's direction. He knew his cousin, but he couldn't know what his role was in all of this. But he knew somehow, just knew that this was the one he had been called to speak about, that he waited for. And he somehow knew that his role was finishing up. The priest had no idea. It all went over their heads. And Jesus wanted to be baptized by John? Jesus was a study in contrast to the religious professionals. They were proud and arrogant and defensive, filled with righteous anger, standing over the crowds. Jesus seemed to be comfortable in humiliating himself, submitting to John's authority, submitting to the moment. But the more John thought about it, he felt more and more ill-prepared for this task. He understood a little what was happening, or at least he thought he did. He wondered if he did. Jesus was the one coming in the name of the Lord. The details were over his pay grade, but the next chapter is here. The world was about to be turned upside down. Judea was about to explode. John knew that he was not worthy to stand before Jesus, only to bow and kiss his hem. Jesus would have none of it. He just stood silently, smiling at John, hands held out, just like all the rest. Clearly, he wanted John to do his thing. John was confused, and he stuttered an awkward objection. Oh, oh no, I can't. I'm not prepared. I will not baptize you. What would that even mean? The rest of us are frightened to see the face of the coming wrathful God. But look at you. You're not. So why me? No, he paused. I need to be baptized by your baptism of spirit and fire. Jesus was so deeply moved by his cousin's faith, he had not seen anything like it, and it pleased him, it honored him. He smiled. John, leave it like this for the time being. It must be done to fulfill the prophets. You can't see it right now, but all will eventually be made clear. This is your final charge, my brother. Where do you want me to stand? And so... John baptized Jesus. For the crowd and the Pharisees, it appeared that John was just baptizing another guilt ridden Jew. But after he did it, something ridiculous and unheard of happened. There was a rumbling in the skies like thunder, but it wasn't that. The skies were clear and bright. Thinking about it more later, John would say it was as if the sky cracked open and a fluttering ball of power, not a thing, It was alive, kind of like a dove, maybe. Nope, it was a person somehow. Was this the Spirit of God, he wondered to himself? It gently fluttered down and sat upon Jesus' shoulders. Not anyone else, only him. Then there was a voice from the open skies. Look, everyone, this man is my son. The voice emphasized this man. It was clearly a slap in the face of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who claimed that they were the true sons of God through Abraham. But one thing was made clear in this field. There was only one son of God. And to be clear, the voice continued, he is the one that I love. I am so pleased with him. In the days to come, John had time to ponder the message. No one else Who came to be baptized, no one else who came to watch and judge, even he had earned God's favor, only this one man, Jesus. How do we know? God personally declared that even though so many, almost all of Israel, had come and been baptized, the second Exodus, none of them were acknowledged as sons or daughters in good standing, only the one, Jesus. God said so. It was a contrast of children. Corporate Israel, the child of God to their credit, came out in force acknowledging their crimes against heaven and humiliating themselves in repentance and being baptized by this firebrand, even though their religious leaders held him in contempt. But there was no voice of approval over them. The heavens were silent. Their efforts had fallen short and were summarily rejected. But there was another child of God who also came and was baptized God only accepted one child as having earned favor or deserved favor, only one. In all of Israel, only one man was acclaimed as being good with God, subject of his blessings, Jesus. But the words were from Psalm 2 and the liturgy from the ordination of Israel's kings. Was this a baptism or ordination of the new king of the Jews or both? John wondered quietly to himself, this was a wonderful thing to behold. And this was the beginning of the coming of the Lord. More to come. All right, uh, that's Matthew 3, uh, verses 1 to 16. We'll pick it up there. uh, Actually, Matthew 4, next podcast, looking at the temptation of Jesus. Again, pass this on to people who you think might benefit from it, might find this interesting, might need to hear of of a different kind of love of God. Uh, remember, this is, this is golden for those Christians who feel like they've screwed up, they've fallen short, they lack faith, they, they're a disappointment to God, they're afraid that God will be disappointed when, they, when he sees them. And, and by the way, according to some surveys, that's over two-thirds of, of evangelicals. All right, if you have any questions or comments, bill at gospel-app.com. We'll see you next time on the Gospel Rant. Until then, take heart, child of God.